Hello, my name is Adam Eason and welcome to episode 92 of Hypnosis Weekly. Hypnosis friends and a very warm welcome to Hypnosis Weekly. Once again, in my own highly biased opinion, I think I have an incredible show lined up for you today. Uh, Mainly because in a short while I'll be sharing with you this week's interview with my guest, Professor Irving Kirsch. I cannot explain to you how happy it makes me to be saying those words. I'm going to talk a bit today about why I wanted Professor Irving Kirsch on this particular show and share some further information about him later. Uh, We're going to give... um, Um, a a, a brief visit to our regular slots of hypnosis in the news and our evidence-based factoid at the end of the show today as well. Um, As I say at the beginning of every Hypnosis Weekly episode, this podcast is something that I want to encompass a feeling of embracing diversity, celebrating the field of hypnosis and encouraging friendly, professional, enjoyable discussion and debate, as well as doing its best to inform and educate. I do not share the same stance as many of our guests and at times have major differences in approach and leaning, but all are incredibly lovely people who I'd happily talk with until late in the pub and all of whom, following their time here on Hypnosis Weekly, I have a great deal of respect for. If you have questions, queries, thoughts or feedback, do get in touch via the Hypnosis Weekly website. All the references made in the discussions, along with related links, are posted at each episode on the website www.hypnosis-weekly.com. You can add your thoughts, comments and make any suggestions there too. Please do share this podcast on Facebook, Twitter and anywhere else to help us reach more of the Hypnosis community. It's greatly appreciated. And if you enjoy this podcast, then please do go give us a favourable rating and even a review you at iTunes. Um, um, It takes just a couple of seconds and one or two clicks to give us a favourable rating and it's uh, uh, we really benefit as a result of it. So I actually planned to have Professor Irving Kirsch on my 100th show which is coming up in a few episodes time. Instead he's on my 92nd show. Well what's so special about the 92nd episode Adam? Uh, You may be thinking well it's special to me because while I'm sat here recording this speaking to you this very week marks the 21st anniversary of me setting up in business as a hypnotherapist. That's right this this week marked the anniversary of me setting up my first hypnotherapy practice some 21 years ago. Um, I'm getting plenty of congratulations from uh, people on LinkedIn, uh, most uh, most of whom have clicked that automated congratulations button, no personalization at all. Uh, and it's making me feel pretty special, appreciated, wonderfully connected to those people, I must say. Um, I'm, my penchant for sarcasm has not abated in the past 21 years either, that's for sure. So in the last 21 years, I've worked with a few thousand individuals, uh, one-to-one for hypnotherapy, therapy, had a couple of best-selling books, sold a few hundred thousand audio products, trained and taught hundreds of people, uh, lectured to to thousands, and I'm still here in this field. And despite some challenges and struggles in those early days, today we're doing okay as far as I'm concerned. Um, I recall on my my 21st birthday having that conversation with some of my friends, um, but there was now nothing left in terms of what I was legally permitted to do. Uh, You can smoke from the age of 16 in the UK, drink at the age of 18, um, and at the time you could get an HGV license at the age of 21, and so there was nothing left now. Um, I could now go and do whatever I chose within the confines of the law. 
And I joked with some friends that the previous 21 years, you know, I'd been training, laying foundations for the day we hit 21 and then we could go and do what we wanted. And upon reflection, I feel a bit like these first 21 years of my business have really only been setting foundations too. I'd say that it's only been in recent times that I felt free within the field that I work within. That is free to dictate my own direction, express myself, follow what I truly believe. And, you know, I, I think I didn't have the understanding, the experience or, or even the knowledge to, to, to do that in the early stages of my career. My business has a firm set of principles today. It has a vision and it's been built upon an ethos that I feel really strongly about. And I think probably I could have earned much more money and been much more popular if I'd have strayed from that ethos. But I'm pleased that I remain true to it as much as is possible. So it makes a lot of sense for me to have somebody that, that, that kind of personifies a, a lot with regards to that, that direction as my guest today. You see, for me, longevity has been key. I had a dream of being where I am today. That is, you know, working for myself, having autonomy over my life, choosing the direction of my business and hypnotherapy being at the heart of what I do, you know, is what I wanted and using it to help others in a range of ways, you know, a wide range of ways. That was the dream. So I, I guess in a sense, I'm living the dream. <laughs> now, whenever I set goals each new year and commence working on new projects, I remind myself that what I have now is once a dream and I have a lot of gratitude for this. Um, so earlier this week, you know, I received a couple of messages from people who were around when I was starting out and most of them not actually working in this field any longer, which is a shame. And we discussed all the people that were prevalent at the time, the different types of communication that was employed back then, the sort of marketing methods people used. And it made me realise how much has changed. I mean, fundamentally changed how few people have true longevity of career in this field of hypnotherapy. For anyone wanting to work as a hypnotherapist for a lengthy period of time, um, I thought that just from my own experience, I'd suggest a couple of things. That firstly, that there'd be adaptability. You see, as a boy, I recall my dad was a member of the Round Table organisation. He was, he was always a member of different types of groups, such as this, you know, Rotary Club and a bunch of stuff, Lions Club. And, and the phrase adopt, adapt, improve, it's a key facet of the organisation, almost like a motto that can be found on much of the Round Table literature and regalia. And it related to the idea of adopting methods that have proved effective in the past, adapting them to the changing times, and when it was possible to do so, improve them. And this always stuck with me. When we examine the history of hypnosis, we, such, we see such development, such change occurring, you know, some turbulent times, some volatile times, and some real golden periods as well. Likewise, in just the years I've been working in this field, I've seen such a lot of change, not just in terms of the way in which the field is perceived, but the, the way you know, people develop their careers in this field and also the ways people have navigated this, their, their business through recessions, uncertain times and traversed or worked through bad publicity, myth and misconception that often surrounds the field of hypnosis and hypnotherapy. So being able to adapt has been key to me, adapt to the, the, the climate of the field and the, the climate of the world, adapt to the perceptions and respond accordingly, seriously. Adopt, adapt, improve should be something that we all have at the heart of our hypnotherapy work with clients and also within our businesses. 
I also believe that hard work is incredibly important. Of course, we all want a quality of life that an effective business affords us, you know, so we don't spend all our time in our offices. However, it's tough to have one of those truly four hour work weeks like Tim Ferriss talks about when we're working with one to one clients in our consulting rooms each day. Then, you know, we're developing our businesses. We're refining what we do at other times. We're learning, training and studying. So, of course, there needs to be some dedication, some discipline. And additionally, hard work, dedication and discipline, they're not just themes of being productive. They're also about how we show up each day. How do we ensure that we're fully present with the people that we engage with? How do we ensure that we recover from what we do and we rejuvenate regularly? How do we reflect upon what we do and and ensure that we're not burning out? I also think, you know, hard work is is hard work with regards to and applying to our mood and and how we are at the time. You know, are, are we good to be around? When it feels good to be around people, they make a strong impression in the lives of others. All the people that have made massive impressions upon me have always been people that I felt good in their company. Now, as a therapist, as a trainer and an educator, that strikes me as being incredibly important. I hope you recognise that. But I also think that we need to have a love for the subject. Everything is made easier when you love what you do. You know, before we had children, Um, I would take academic journals and textbooks with me on holidays with my wife because I loved reading about the subject so much. I mean, you know, there'd there'd be sci-fi and fantasy novels as well. Uh, But I encounter numerous people within this field for whom they love the idea of being a hypnotherapist. But for a number of reasons, the reality of it does not live up to the fantastical dreams, often because they've been able to or they've struggled to develop a business that's effective or because they're not getting the results that they want with the clients in a consistent fashion or just the being in a therapy room working with people who are ill depressed or anxious for example is not quite as romantic as it once seemed for me the love was kept strong even at the times when i struggled and it saw me through you know i have a great curiosity that's that, that's not been satiated yet about our field i have a mission that is completely unfinished at the moment. And it fuels that love. I tap into that often and it helps greatly. And I think we need enthusiasm, you know. And and of course, as I've been talking about previously, refers to this and leads to this. But being enthusiastic is one thing. But really ensuring that people can feel and tune into your enthusiasm is something which fuels the business and it also helps you individually. People say enthusiasm is contagious. Yes, I believe it is, but not just contagious to other people that you come into contact with. I think it's also contagious to your days. You know, it's contagious to your life. If you're enthusiastic one day, there's a good likelihood that it'll spread into other days too. And that enthusiasm will work its way into the manner by which you communicate your business online in real life and it'll influence you in a number of ways and those that that that, that experience you and finally i think we have humility we need humility you know being able to accept when i'm wrong having made mistakes or could do things better it's been important that is you know i've rewritten entire books i've updated course curriculums you know successful course cr- courses rewritten the curriculums. I've developed and adapted in line with 
uh, are the evidence base in line with feedback, in line with constructive criticism. And, and of course, with my own experience, I've been humble enough to admit that I, I do not know it all. And I do not have all the answers to everything as far as this field is concerned. And I appreciate there's there's always room for improvement. And I think this is key as a hypnotherapist. And, and in particular, it's key, um, it's key for, for hypnotherapy teachers, lecturers. I've written about this, these things before and I've spoken about them before. Um, I, recent experiences with peer review. Um, I'm you know, submitting my work to peer-reviewed journals, um, um, as well as with really detailed feedback from lectures that I've given, in particular at the Royal Society of Medicine. Um, and the way I encourage feedback from clients, students, peers, you know, being humble enough to listen to this stuff and not think that we know it already, not, not, not just digging our heels in and entrenching ourselves dogmatically, not thinking that we know better than everyone and anyone already, not... Not, not, always, not always an easy thing to do, but you'll achieve more and, uh, and you'll achieve it faster when you have humility, I believe. Now, I didn't intend to, to, to necessarily speak about a kind of recipe for longevity of career as a hypnotherapist, but I wanted to in the end because I see so many people struggle in this regard um, and so many people come and go. And, you know, so many people arrive in the field, make a loud noise, do things that... that, that, that a sort of spoon fed to them as a sort of template for a career that really lets them down. You see, to me, 21 years is just the early days. I'm really excited about the next 21 years, seeing how things mature and develop and grow from here. So for me, this episode of the podcast, it's special because it's the one that is published at this time. And my guest happens to be a real life hero of mine. And I believe that any professional in the hypnosis field should feel and think the same. You see, having studied his books, his research and his work on other topics such as placebo, having referenced him so much in my own books and my own research and my own teaching, I had the chance to meet with Irving Kirsch in the summer of 2017. My PhD supervisor, uh, head of the psychology department and postgraduate research department, uh, my friend, Dr. Ben Paris, um, someone who I'm going to be inviting onto the show, show soon too, um, who's really at the coalface of modern hypnosis research, currently a major theoretician as well. Um, he was hosting Irving here at the University of Bournemouth to discuss research, to consult with on the subject of hypnosis to, to, with regards to his own research as well, and to present a couple of lectures while he was here at the university. And, you know, we've seen it written over and over that you should never meet your heroes. And the internet holds many accounts of people who, upon meeting their heroes, found that it was simply not as they had hoped. Perhaps some had unrealistic and high expectations that couldn't be met. Others had these sort of fantastical ideas about how someone is and so on. And so when Ben told me that he wanted me to present my current research to Irving, I was incredibly excited, even if I was also you know, riddled with nerves, I don't mind admitting. Now, those who have ever attended my courses know that I refer to Irving Kirsch's major contribution to the body of research that the field of hypnosis boasts. He is currently the program director for placebo studies um, at Harvard University. He holds the position of professor at three other universities and is officially retired. His books on hypnosis and placebo adorn my shelves, and I think that they are vital reading for any evidence-based hypnotherapist or psychotherapist. 
Now, I met up with Irving and uh, Ben Paris in a training room at the Bournemouth University campus to deliver a presentation on my current research. And it was the smallest audience I've ever presented to, but certainly the most nerve-inducing one. You know, I usually get to teach my subjects to audiences who wish to know more or who are looking for insight and knowledge development. Yet he was a man whose work had informed my own greatly throughout my career. He was challenging myths and misconceptions of hypnosis while I was a teenager. He's a lifelong academic, but also a researcher and a clinician. You know, he's worked with individuals extensively throughout his career and he has an incredible wealth of experience you know I, I could not help feeling a tad overawed you can call me Irving were pretty much his first words and when I openly admitted my nervousness he told me his, his exact words take a marshmallow have a cream puff there's nothing to be nervous about here um, I loved that um, I attempted to condense my research into a single hour-long presentation and at the halfway point of the time allotted I'd probably got a quarter of the way through my material and I overran um, um, but I delivered it all and as well as receiving some satisfying praise I got some excellent guidance on future direction some components to consider adding and exploring and some incredibly useful feedback. Um, if you follow my Twitter, Facebook or Instagram accounts or read my blog, you'll find photos I took of the day of him and I together, um, which I'm, I, you know, I'm very proud of. Now, we headed out for lunch uh, with the pressure off, um, a sort of self-induced sense of a scrutinising glare over. We relaxed. We got to talk about hypnosis over lunch. We spoke about placebo much more in a thoroughly enjoyable manner. Um, I found out so much. I asked him about his research and we joked, we laughed and it became an absolute pleasure just to be around somebody like himself. I was dipping into his knowledge and his experience, his natural thought processes. Later on that evening, um, Irving delivered a lecture entitled The Wonderful World of Placebo, one of the large university lecture theatres. Um, a number of my college students and graduates attended. Um, it wasn't just incredibly insightful and filled with studies that I've been digging out to read. Um, it was humorous. It was quite surprising at times. And it's very useful for me as a hypnotherapy trainer and as a hypnotherapist. In particular, some of the references to how placebo can be enhanced by the manner of its delivery, the relevance of placebo research into the therapeutic alliance, the varying forms of expectancy and the importance of context within placebo were all areas that really stood out for me. And I was delighted that the, these were all central topics that are covered in my own teaching. Um, and I saw some ways in which my own coverage of these topics could be enriched uh, further as a result of the lecture. I wish I'd have had more time to spend with my students, graduates of the college. But after a post-lecture drink, I had to drive Irving over to the restaurant where we were booked in to have dinner. In the car, uh, we talked about his written correspondence with Bertrand Russell as a younger man. And this delighted me. In return, I got to tell him about how I used Bertrand Russell's teapot theory when confronted with people telling me that I cannot prove the subconscious mind does not exist. And there's a link to that article over at this episode's page on the Hypnosis Weekly website. I found out about how Stephen J. Lynn had taken Irving under his wing in the early days of his academic career. I discovered his love of theoretical research and I became much more familiar with his clinical approach and experience that previously I'd been unaware of. I asked him about everything that I'd ever thought of uh, <coughs> and it must have felt like 
Well, the same way that I feel when one of my kids has a major stream of consciousness and just wants answers to everything at once. You know, how many sleeps until Christmas, Dad? Can you get my favourite shorts out for me, Dad? Can we play Hot Wheels, Dad? What does ice cream... Why does ice cream melt when it's hot, Dad? Can we have the paddling pool out, Dad? Are you working tomorrow, Dad? Can we take me to the park tomorrow, Dad? Why can't we go to space, Dad? So we had dinner right on the seafront uh, on a very warm, balmy evening. Um, we were joined by Ben and uh, another colleague, Alethea, from Bournemouth University. And I managed to convince Irving of the best gin and tonic to drink. We talked non-stop about hypnosis, placebo, future research ideas, life in general. And it was great. I simply can't do justice to the ground I felt got covered in our discussions and the depth of benefit to me. We even talked about Douglas Adams and other sci-fi comedy. You know, I mean, how happy was I? So that's why in today's interview, you'll hear me reference the fact that I've kind of pummeled him with questions before today, before he came on the podcast. So for me, I was delighted to meet my hero. I love to discover the real people beneath their work, but also recognise what it was about them that enabled them to be the person that they are. Irving was incredibly insightful, very warm, very generous with his expertise and advice, and, and seemed to be driven by a, a desire to do good and help others contribute valuably too. He was a lot of fun to be around. I felt very motivated as a result of my time with him. And following our meeting, I spent plenty of time charting my ideas, deciphering the masses of notes that I made throughout the day and night. And he offered me um, some help in the future. And and him and I will be keeping in contact. Um, But adopting the role of humble student was incredibly valuable. I told him about my podcast in a recent email exchange, you know, its aims and, uh, and, and my own struggle to make the frontline hypnotherapy field aware of major contributing researchers, authors, academics such as him. And I asked him um, if he'd come and be a guest on this show. You know, he gets invites to do many things around the world. He's in very high demand. So I was delighted when he agreed. OK, let's hand over to him, shall we? For now, get comfy, my friends. Turn up the volume, sip on your tea. Enjoy this week's interview and discussion with Professor Irving Kirsch. So as I've just been discussing, I'm delighted to be joined on Hypnosis Weekly this week by the one and only Professor Irving Kirsch. Irving, welcome to Hypnosis Weekly. Thanks, Adam. Thanks for uh, having me on. So, um, first of all, could you tell us a little bit about how your interest in hypnosis developed and, and perhaps a little bit about your background leading into the, the, this field? Well, the uh, interest in hypnosis began in my clinical training at the University of Southern California. One of the professors in the uh, program was Perry London, who was a very early hypnosis researcher and uh, back in those days well known in the re- in the hypnosis community yeah and uh, he taught a practicum that I was taking and part of what he taught was hypnosis clinically I didn't get involved in it in re- as a research topic until some years later I'd been interested in expectancy effects and uh, in a number of areas and especially in behavior therapy and the whole idea of placebo effects. And um, uh, one of the uh, one of my graduate students, uh, Jim Council, 
came in with some articles on, on hypnosis and some studies on hypnosis, and he was on my research team. We yeah. talked about them and uh, decided to do some research in it, looking at the role of expectancy in hypnosis. Mm. And that started out my uh, series of studies and articles and books on hypnosis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you know... Where are you at? Where, where did you kind of? I don't know if you if, if you've ever if, if where did you end up um, is is really the, the the right way to phrase the question. But but where are you at as far as hypnosis is concerned today? You know, um, do you have a particular a particular definition or a particular way in which you conceptualize it or or a different a particular way in which you explain hypnosis to to to, to people that were either either clients of yours or people that were patients of yours or, or students of yours and and did did your definition and your understanding changed as a result of your research? And perhaps you could tell us a little bit about that. Well, uh, the uh, definition that uh, I like was the first one that was proposed by the uh, hypnosis division of the APA, American Psychological Association, back in the 1990s. And we tried to put together a definition that would be theoretically neutral that everyone could agree on and it did get a wide area of agreement it was based on a previous definition by john kilstrom mm. who's been a hypnosis scholar for uh, decades and it has to do with defining hypnosis procedurally hypnosis is a, a procedure or a, a situation a, a culturally defined it's uh, one in which someone who's labeled a hypnotist um, induces, uh, does a hypnotic induction with someone labeled the subject and makes suggestions for changes in experience and, and behavior. And uh, that can be used clinically and can be done, uh, used in, in research as well. So that was the basic definition, but that that's uh, um, theoretically neutral. There are different yeah. ways of conceptualizing what hypnosis is what you think it is doing research to try and validate it and um, the uh, first thing that came to my mind as I learned about hypnosis uh, I was uh, my first influence was Ted Barber Theodore mm -hmm. Barber who's one of the first non-state theorists um, and so I thought of uh, hypnosis not as inducing a trance state um, but as rather a situation that was in some ways akin to what happens with placebos and in some ways akin to parts of what happens in, in aspects of behavior, particular kinds of behavior therapies like systematic desensitization, in which you may use relaxation, you don't uh, need to, um, but you do make changes, uh, suggestions for changes in experience. Um, those uh, changes can come about whether you do a hypnotic induction or not. Mm. And there does seem to be a great variability between people. So there are tremendous individual differences in the extent to which people respond to the kinds of suggestions that are used in hypnosis. But what we know is that, that those individual differences are much more important than whether you do a hypnotic induction or not. People who are capable of responding to hypnotic suggestions to experiencing the various phenomena of hypnosis uh, are able usually to do that whether or not 
you induce hypnosis. If you do a hypnotic induction, you may increase the responsiveness slightly, but it's a rather, rather small increase. And there's, as has been known from well before my time, this goes back to the uh, work of Clark Hull, who was uh, perhaps the first uh, psychologist to do controlled research in, in hypnosis. And one of the things that he said is that there is nothing that you can um, do in hypnosis that you can't do to perhaps a somewhat lesser extent, but that you can't also do without hypnosis. So in some ways, I think of the hypnotic induction as being a kind of a placebo, something that can lessen someone's disbelief and make it easier for them, therefore, to experience the things that are suggested. Mm-hmm. And so, so tell me a little bit about um, 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 some of your influences. You know, th- throughout your career, um, 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 who have been some of the major influences um, um, of yours w- as far as hypnosis is concerned? Are there are there particular researchers, mentors? Are there any particular books and authors that have taught you more, or that you've learned more, or or, or fellow academics? Um, that have been the most influential upon you, and perhaps a little bit of the the, the reasons why. Okay. Um, well, two I already mentioned. Um, one, Perry London, who introduced me to hypnosis, who yeah. taught me hypnosis clinically. A second, T.X. Barber, yeah. um, whose book uh, uh, was very influential for me, and uh, uh, whom uh, was... From the beginning, when I first I wrote to him, actually cold, never having met him, when I was planning to do my first research with uh, Jim Council and others uh, in the field, and he was uh, extremely forthcoming and, and helpful, and um, plus he would, he was a good scientist, and and uh, so I learned a lot from him. Uh, I was also influenced by the writings of uh, Ted Sarbin and and Bill Coe, um, and mentored by uh, my lifelong friend and colleague now, uh, Steve Lynn. I met Stephen J. Lynn at a hypnosis conference in Boston many, many years ago. We began chatting. I had just started doing research in hypnosis. He was a seasoned hypnosis researcher. Um, I learned a lot from him, and we became uh, good colleagues, did a lot of work together, written books together, edited books together, written articles together, done studies together. So uh, he's been a great influence and a great friend. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, Throughout your career, um, um, has there has there been a, a, a standout um, um, application of hypnosis um, or, or an incident or an experience um, um, that you've directly witnessed? Um, um, perhaps you could just share with us any one of the more impressive applications of hypnosis that, that you've directly witnessed. Well, if you can allow directly witnessed to be on videotape, I have to say that uh, one of the most impressive is a uh, video of uh, Mike Gow, who's a dentist in Scotland and uh, part of the Hypnosis Society up there, uh, doing a tooth extraction. Uh, I believe it was a wisdom tooth, but I'm not sure. But anyway, doing a tooth extraction. Um, 
with uh, hypnosis, uh, hypnotic suggestion as uh, the only uh, anesthetic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I, you know, I, I just find that, that, that's, that, that stuff to be incredible um, when we see it. Um, um, one of the things that, that I, I, I'm always... Uh, one of the things that, that I quote in, in my own classes um, um, is, is a phrase of yours from the 1990s. Um, I'm describing hypnosis as a non-deceptive mega placebo. And, you know, your, your own research on the subject of placebo is, is you know, incredibly extensive as well. Um, um, and I'm just wondering, did, did your interest in, 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 in hypnosis or placebo lead you to the other, t uh, the other one um, um, in terms of your, your direction? I'm not sure if I understand what you're asking. So, were you, um, um, were you were you interested in placebo first, um, ah. and then that led you towards um, exploring yeah. hypnosis, or were you kind of into, into hypnosis and then started to identify it as having a relationship with placebo, and, and went off to explore right. that more? Now, my my first interest was in in placebo, and uh, that was because of an earlier interest uh, in expectancy. Um, and the role of expectancy in behavior therapy. Um, and that led me to an interest in, in placebo effect. And the interest in hypnosis as a research topic, again, is something that came about uh, just in looking for other areas in which uh, expectancy ought to be playing a large role, uh, an important role, and doing research on that. And uh, I would Again, credit that influence to uh, Jim Council, uh, who was a graduate a student of mine at the time and with uh, whom uh, I did considerable work and then who went on to do a lot of work in the area on his own, who raised the idea and my, on my research team of uh, doing some studies on hypnosis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so... Do, do, do hypnosis and placebo have a relationship? Um, do they have a relationship? And if so, could you, could you explain the relationship? Sure. First thing that uh, is clear about uh, the relationship and then there, why there is relationships is they're both phenomena uh, of which a central component, perhaps the central component, is suggestion. Mm. So when, you're, when you do hypnosis, or when you do hypnotic-like suggestions without hypnosis, what you're doing is you're making suggestions. The induction itself of hypnosis is a suggestion. Placebos are suggestions. Uh, you're told that this is a medication, that this is a medication that works in a particular way. Um, so that's... Um, uh, uh, certainly a commonality. Yeah. The problem with um, placebos in terms of using them clinically is the fact that usually uh, it, it involves deception. And often assume that it has to involve deception. We've found some exceptions and ways of getting around that recently, but I won't go into that because that doesn't relate directly to hypnosis. It involves deception because you're telling someone that what they're taking is an active drug, and in fact, what they're taking is an inactive uh, substance. Uh, now, with uh, uh, hypnosis, you're making use of suggestion. Um, hypnosis seems to be effective, uh, hypnotic suggestion seems to be effective 
for the same kinds of responses and experiences that one can have clinically uh, with, hip, with um, placebo. So for example, placebo is very effective as a treatment for irritable bowel syndrome, and uh, hypnosis is a very effective treatment for irritable bowel syndrome. So the yes. conditions that are affected by one are affected uh, by the other. But when you're using hypnosis in treatment, you're not deceiving. You're not telling them that you don't have to tell them that this is an active drug or anything like that. You can explain exactly what you know about it and uh, have no deception at all and engender the, uh, uh, the responses in that way. The hypnosis also, when you do comparisons, tends to be more powerful than pill placebos. So not all placebos are alike, and hypnosis, to the extent you, that you can regard it as a placebo, um, it, it, it's non-deceptive and tends to be more powerful than a simple pill placebo. Now that said, um, I guess the way I phrased this question about hypnosis as a non-deceptive uh, placebo sometimes gets a little overblown. Sure. Uh, I'm not saying that it is a non-deceptive placebo. I'm saying it can be used as a non-deceptive placebo. There are some differences yeah. between hypnosis and, and, and placebo. One of them is that uh, hypnotic responding seems very trait-like. Placebo responding does not. Uh, you can't predict how a person is going to respond to a placebo based on how they've responded to a different uh, placebo. So there are some differences between the two, yet you can use hypnosis as a powerful means for eliciting the phenomena that you can elicit with placebos um, without deception and sometimes to a stronger degree. Mm, mm, fascinating. Um, um, you, know, you, you mentioned a lot of your, your early interest in, in expectancy, and I know that, that theoretically um, 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 you've, you've you've involved expectancy and and the way in which expectancy influences um, um, thought processes uh, previously in, in some of your work um, um, how much do you think expectancy is 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 at the heart of of hypnosis today yeah I think it's a, a an important part of it um, certainly the kinds of experiences that people have when they are hypnotized uh, have been related to the kinds of experiences they think they're going to happen it would happen uh, during hypnosis uh, people can to a reasonable degree uh, predict how responsive they're going to be hypnosis uh, during hypnosis uh, expectancy seems to be the best correlate we've been able to find um, for predicting a person's responsiveness to hypnosis so it plays a, uh, an important major role. That being said, um, it's not the only uh, uh, variable explaining individual differences. There may be a kind of a talent for generating uh, subjective experiences independently of what's happening out there, um, which is a characteristic of both hypnotic responding and placebo uh, effects. Um, for the for doing it in hypnosis where there's no deception and the person has to generate the experience, um, there seems to be a trait-like character. And although you can influence it powerfully, if you increase, uh, there's one 
expectancy manipulation that my colleagues and I and former students and I have done um, a couple of times in which uh, we are able to lead people to believe that they are extremely responsive and they wind up then being extremely responsive to the point at which uh, nobody scores as a low hypnotizable uh, having uh, uh, gone through that manipulation. The manipulation involves uh, things that uh, like telling people, first con convincing people by providing experiences of their own responsiveness for them. So uh, uh, we had uh, subjects be hypnotized sitting in a room in which there were hidden lights. And while hypnotized, we asked them to open their eyes, remain deeply hypnotized, and told them, gave them the suggestion that the room was beginning to turn red. Mm. We had this light controlled by a rheostat so that it could be turned up slightly, a red light, and little by little, we imparted a faint red tinge to the room. And then we told them that's going back to normal, and we cut that down, and, and we told them the room was beginning to turn green, and so on. So making a number of suggestions that we could make happen through environmental manipulation, that was to convince them that they could experience things that we suggested. Following that, without any further environmental manipulation, we measured their ability to respond to suggestion using, uh, I think we use the, the uh, Stanford Form C scale, which is uh, typically considered state of the art for measuring responsiveness to hypnosis. Yeah. And whereas uh, uh, without doing that manipulation, you get a small number of, of people who are com almost completely unresponsive, a small number of people who uh, uh, are very responsive, and most people s scoring somewhere in the middle. After it, most people wound up extremely, being extremely responsive, uh, and uh, the rest of them being moderately, and no one being unresponsive. We retested them a couple of weeks later, explaining what we had done, showing them where the lights were and all of that. So now that we've eliminated the deception, that experience of experience, that, that prior experience, because there was no deception involved in, uh, in when giving them the actual hypnosis scale, was enough to leave them to be uh, maintain their ability to respond to suggestions. So they continued to respond as highs two weeks later, even after we exposed the manipulation and gave them an honest account of what we had done. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um... You know, um, um, Irving, I could I could just keep asking you stuff until the cows come home. Um, um, uh, but 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 you know, you've experienced that 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 side of me before. So so I'm not just going to keep hammering you with questions. For for people that want to go and learn more about um, your research, your work, your approach to hypnosis and placebo, um, um, where should they start? Where should they go? Oh, that's a good question. Well, in terms of clinical work, I've co-authored a book. Called Essentials of Clinical Hypnosis, uh, co-authored co it with uh, Stephen J. Lynn. Yeah. Um, in terms of theory, there is a book called Theories of Hypnosis, edited by uh, Lynn and Rue, and I have a chapter in there on the social learning uh, theory of hypnosis um, that I think is reasonably comprehensive, though a bit yeah. uh, dated. So those are two good places to start. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, um, I will. Um, I'll put links to to both of those um, over on this uh, uh, this episode's page of the Hypnosis Weekly website. Um, do go check those out. Um, Irving, thank you ever so much for your time. I really appreciate your contribution, uh, um, not just to this this podcast, to the field in general. Um, um, Irving Kirsch, thank you. Thank you, Adam, for those very kind words and a, and a nice interview. I really enjoyed that. Of course I did. Um, On to this week's uh, hypnosis in the news slot. Then this week I'm I'm just mentioning one single story um, and I'm only interested in the positives of it. Um, um, Recently to shed light on the refugee crisis and the harrowing journey that some refugees are forced to make on a daily basis. Amnesty International asked five people from the Netherlands uh, and Belgium to experience hypnosis and use hypnosis as a means of uh, sort of living one of those dangerous journeys of the refugee. Um, And um, so they've published a five and a half minute film that's called Through the Eyes of a Refugee. And it follows uh, five people who were hypnotized um, and the hypnosis was used to create an experience for them so they could gain some, some insight into the journey of a Syrian refugee. And um, under the guidance of a professional hypnotherapist, the participants experienced the journey of a Syrian refugee as she was making her way to safety in Europe. Um, when, the, when the individuals um, are, are, are hypnotised, they have uh, detailed um, to them that the, the chaos of war, the destruction of the family life, um, and her, 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 the, the experience, the, the emotional experience of the refugee um, that the refugee has, and um, and finally the help that she received in applying to come safely to to, to Holland, to the Netherlands. Um, and the people in the film clearly believe that they're living the journey um, when they exit hypnosis. They're introduced to the lady who's feet they were stepping into whose shoes they were walking in through throughout this experience and uh, all of them detail that they feel her plight and her struggle and they give her hugs of assurance and empathy um and the film is tagged with the strap line refugees are nowhere without your understanding um and you know the, the there's a bunch of theoretical stuff that I'm not entirely sure of as far as this particular story is concerned, but I just think um, um, the message that it has and how moving I found it to be in, in the broader sense really made it uh, um, um, noteworthy today. And links to this particular story are given um, over at this episode's page on the Hypnosis Weekly website. Um, on to our um, evidence-based factoid of the week. And the fact is this, that... More sessions are better than fewer when it comes to the evidence supporting hypnosis for smoking cessation. So that is, there was a a comprehensive review of smoking cessation studies conducted in the year 2000 by Joseph Green and Stephen J. Lynn. And it reviewed 59 studies of hypnosis and smoking cessation. um, And it was looking into whether the research empirically supports hypnosis as a treatment, just in and of itself, um, um, as far as smoking cessation was concerned. And one of the findings, I mean, there was a number of findings with that particular paper. Um, One of the findings further reinforced many other findings of a number of studies. 
a Spiegel study in 1970, Pedersen in 1975, Stanton 1978, Berkowitz in 1979, Javel 1980, Cornwell and colleagues in 1980, Rabkin 1984, um, Hyman 1986, Neufeld and Lynn 1988, Williams and Hall 1988, Spanos and colleagues in 92 and 95, Spiegel and colleagues in 1993. Loads of studies is the point I'm trying to make that all show and agree with um, the Green and Lynn uh, review showing that minimal approaches to hypnosis involving only one or two sessions typically have reported cessation rates of only around 20%. And several reports show that more intensive approaches to hypnosis for smoking cessation, such as three to six sessions, suggest much higher rates of smoking cessation, verging on 80%, Holroyd in 1980, Krasilnik in 1990, Johnson and Carcutt in 1994. There are others. It would suggest, therefore, and my factoid this week, is that a more thorough, robust and comprehensive approach to stopping smoking is recommended according to the evidence. And, and it beggars belief, really, why, why it's encouraged so much that we do and that we engage in single stop smoking session um, um, sessions for smoking cessation as hypnotherapist. It seems to be very popular, yet the evidence does not support that as, as an approach. And um, we, we've discussed this in some depth at my um, my college Facebook group. Do go go Google it. Um, Anglo-European College of Therapeutic Hypnosis in brackets Adam Eason um, um, on Facebook, and uh, you'll track it down where I've where I've posted that. And there's been a number of different um, discussion threads as far as this concern, as far as this is concerned. Come join the debate should you wish. So. And there's a link to the, the Green and Lynn um, research paper, the, the, the review research paper that's included on this episode's page of the Hypnosis Weekly website as, as every week. Um, that's it for this week's 92nd edition. Uh, I've got many more exciting guests that I'll welcome to Hypnosis Weekly in coming editions. We'll be discussing, debating, celebrating and above all remaining friends. Next time out, I have a, a special edition of a different kind. Do look out for it. That's it for another edition of the Hypnosis Weekly Podcast. Thank you for letting me celebrate my 21 years business anniversary with you. All the references made in the discussions, along with related links, are posted at each episode on the Hypnosis Weekly website, www.hypnosis-weekly.com. I absolutely welcome your thoughts, comments and suggestions, so do please message me or add them on the Hypnosis Weekly website, and I'll make sure they are addressed, answered and explored accordingly. Please do share this podcast on Facebook, Twitter and anywhere else. Really help us reach the hypnosis field. My thanks again to Professor Irving Kirsch. And my thanks to you, as always, for tuning in. My name is Adam Eason. This has been Hypnosis Weekly. Until next time, goodbye for now. Mm-hmm.